up a powerful story? I'm Mary DeMuth, and in this podcast, I share stories of everyday people who remind you that you're not alone as you untangle your own story. Because of the outrageous generosity of God, I believe you can experience a joyful restory moment right now. Remember, the old is gone, the new awaits. The Restory Show starts now. The Restory Show, Season 3, Episode 8. Today's podcast is brought to you by BooklaunchMentor.com. If you've ever dreamed of writing and actually publishing that story, you will find all the mentoring you'll need to fulfill that book launching dream at BooklaunchMentor.com. So stop on by and see some of the resources that we have there. Before we get into today's show, I'd like to highlight the iTunes review of the week. And today's is by Nate Merrill. And he writes, Mary's style of storytelling and asking the right questions at the right time create an engaging experience for the listener. She has the ability to have a conversation that makes you feel like you are a part of it. I look forward to more re-stories and how God will use them to impact me. So Nate, thank you so much for doing that. And, and if you have a little bit of time today, if you could write a little review, um, that just helps get the podcast out there. It's one of my goals in 2017 to expand the reach of this. And I don't have a lot of economic power behind that. So I have to jump to what power I do have, and that's you, the listener. So if you could write a review or share it with a friend this week, especially if this one touches you deeply, it's always nice to be able to share something like that with your friends. And if you'd like to be featured on The Restory Show, just go ahead and go to marydemuth.com and you can record a little two-minute story there. Just click the little microphone. Today, I am welcoming my friend, Dr. Sandra Glon, and she and I have been friends for like 17 years now, really long-standing friend and a dear person. She's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and she's written lots of books, both nonfiction and fiction, and she's been so inspiring to me and has a great story, a difficult story, but a great story to tell. So without any further ado, here is Sandra. Hey, everyone. It's Mary from The Restory Show, and I'm super excited to have my friend Sandra Glon on The Restory Show with us this week. And I know she has like 10,000 stories, but she's going to share one with us. And we met a million years ago at the beginning of the 2000s, right after Y2K, when things didn't uh, get bad after all. And uh, we met at church, and we've been friends ever since, and she's been instrumental in just encouraging me in my writing career and just my life. So uh, she and I, we're part of a mutual admiration society of each other, and uh, she's great. So Sandra, welcome to The Restory Show. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. Awesome. So um, Sandra is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, where my husband went to seminary, and we kind of met that that way, but also through church. And um, why don't you tell the listeners what you do for a living? I know you have like four hats, but why don't you tell us all the hats you wear? Okay. I am uh, Associate Professor of Media Arts and Worship. My first love at DTS is teaching writing students. But a very close second is a course I get to teach in Italy on medieval art and spirituality and trying to sort of rediscover tr- how truth was taught to preliterate peoples for many centuries. And as our society moves more back to more visual and audio and less less reading, to sort of rediscover how other people did it, you know, so we're not having to reinvent the wheel. And poor me, that means I have to spend a couple of weeks in Italy every other summer. I know That's it's rough. Such somebody- a sacrifice. Thank you for doing that. You can punch my martyr card later. And then I also teach a course that I really love in gender. One of my exam fields in my PhD program was the history of ideas about gender and trying to sift through Christian subculture versus what is really timeless and transcends culture and 
I really love that one, not so much because I love the content as much as I like teaching writers, but I love what happens on people's faces when they find out truths that free them. Awesome. I know that I've definitely been freed by many of those truths, and I so appreciate your scholarly work on our behalf. So thank you. So why don't you kind of catch the listeners up to your life? Give us kind of a snapshot of how you grew up, how you met Christ. You, I know you met a guy named Gary one day and you became married and just kind of give us a, a nutshell uh, version of your life. Well, part of why you and I hit it off so well in the beginning was because we're both from the Pacific Northwest and uh, I live in, I've lived in Texas since the early 80s, but there are times I am still in culture shock. Preach it, lady. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. So... Anyway, but I'm the fourth of five kids, grew up in the Willamette Valley on the river. We did go to church, but uh, so we were home on Sundays, but we really, as soon as my dad got home on Friday night, we loaded up the trailer, loaded up the tents, and off we went. And we were an hour from the beach, an hour from the desert, an hour from the mountains. And so, and with five kids, uh, hiking was a really good way for us to work off energy. So I grew up loving uh, natural beauty, loving the outdoors, loving uh, we were into the caring for the environment before it was cool. It's just sort of a way of life out there. And so because I'm the fourth of five kids, I grew up hearing early on that that was really weird to be in a big family. Are you Catholic people ask us? They would make jokes about, you know, you can prevent that sort of thing. Hello, like, do you want me to not be born? But anyway, <laughs> I loved being in a big family. Uh, the best part actually was the seven-part harmony on road trips. And mm. so much time in the car going, you know, camping and stuff. Uh, when dad wasn't driving, he would play the auto harp. My mom would play the ukulele. My brothers, we, we're a pretty musical family. And so I just grew up wanting a big family. I loved when I would have an orchestra concert, I play viola. And, I, you know, I had at least six fans there, at least. You know, and that's if none of my <laughs> friends came. And so I just, I love a big noisy Christmas. I like a big, huge feast of Thanksgiving. The noise does, the mess doesn't bother me. And so when I hit the brick wall of infertility, once I married Gary Glenn, it was really a huge crisis, not just a medical crisis for us, but I really only had one vision of what Christian motherhood looked like. My mom was a fabulous homemaker, like, like really pictured sound of music. And, and that was my mom, you know, there was the singing, there was the hiking, there was the playing that it was just really fun. And, and so it was a huge shock to me when, uh, we came up to the end of Gary's years in seminary in Dallas and thinking he's going to be a pastor. We're going to have a big family and I'm going to probably have a nice big herb, bar herb garden in Oregon and wear Birkenstocks and none of that, none <laughs> of what I envisioned for myself is how my life turned out. You know, my dad would say that common phrase, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And boy, that was certainly the case for me. Not one plan that I made for myself ended up uh, being what I expected. But but in terms of, of what I want to talk about today is the crisis of faith that it was for me, because I think that a lot of people who are single have a very similar crisis of faith. People going through infertility have a similar crisis. We get this idea, and we are actually told that a woman's highest calling is to be a wife and a mother. And that that is just not true. A woman's highest calling is to be who God wants her to be. And so when I came up through Christian subculture with these, these messages that, you know, if you are into your career, then you just have wrong values. If 
If you long to be anything but a mother, then you're shallow, you know, or you're a feminazi, et cetera, et cetera. So when it happened to me, I just didn't understand how here I was in a good marriage. We were ready to take the overflow of our love and raise a child or, you know, more. Why would God not be very happy to, to have that happen? And so it was such a crisis. It really sent me back to Genesis. I had to really look at, I had to go back to the beginning and say, who am I as a woman? What is a woman? What was she made for? How much of this is Christian subculture? If anything, I had been warned about the dangers of feminism, but I would say equally as dangerous in the church are the messages of Christian subculture that are that are American culture instead of biblical. Thing, you know, we would overlook the fact that the ideal woman of Proverbs 31 is buying and selling real estate, and she's buying and selling belts, and it's her husband who's hanging out, piecing out at the gate, doing justice while she's bringing in the income and. You have Jesus who is being supported by women, none of which seems to, you know, be a threat to his manhood or make him sacrifice his man card. And so I'm I'm having to go back and just really start at the beginning and walk all the way through. Where did I get this idea? Where is it wrong? Where is it right? Because we didn't have children, we ended up doing some international mission work. And that further solidified this idea that the difference between American subculture and if it's biblical, it's going to transcend culture. And I would go right. into the developing world and nobody was arguing about whether a woman could or couldn't work. That was a very middle and upper class discussion. It was just, it wasn't even on the possibilities uh, of the thinking of the women that I was talking to. So again, at that, at that time in America, there was a lot of bickering over whether women could even work outside the home, which is totally a luxury discussion to be having. Yes, let us know how that is luxury discussion, because um, I think some people will be like, what, what do you mean by that? Well, if you are struggling to feed yourself and your children every day, you're not sitting around wondering, can I earn money outside the house or not? You, your question is, you know, give us this day our daily bread and what can I do to hustle and use every resource at my disposal to bring in food for my family? And the the idea of arguing over whether a woman can go outside the home to earn income is not even a question that you ask if you're hungry. You just are not asking that question. All you're asking is, you know, who can I find to keep my kids so that, you know, or, so that I can go graze, you know, work in a field or go or how can I work out childcare so that I can make baskets so that I can sell them anything. To, and, and that really is right out of Proverbs 31, um, the kind of woman who is portrayed as wisdom personified. You know, the, the whole book of Proverbs is just bookended with wisdom. And chapter 1 begins with wisdom calling out in the street. Chapter 31 is really sort of the equivalent to past tense. It's not her to-do list. This is not a typical day in this woman's life. She's looking back on her life at all the various things that she did. And I think she gets vilified and she shouldn't because now that I'm almost at my sixth decade, I can see where people will say to me, oh my gosh, you've written all these books and you've got your PhD. I'm like, yeah, it took five decades to do all that. You know, if you're 20 years old, you shouldn't be 30 years old, 40 years old. You shouldn't be looking at your corpus of work thinking you should have accomplished all that. You know, you've got time to do it. So anyway, in the developing world, women are not bickering over, you know, whether it's legit to earn money to feed their families. They're just really thankful for any opportunities to go to sleep with a full belly. 
Exactly. And I, I like what you have to say about figuring out what is, and I think this is a quest that I've been on for several years, especially as one who's traveled overseas, is what is biblical and what is American? And teasing those two things out, especially in our climate today, it's just so difficult to to tease those two out. We have been fed this particular view of Christianity that we're kind of convinced is the right way because, you know, we're Americans and we win at everything. But um, <laughs> we're, <always> good, <laughs> right. we're such a bunch of winners. But yeah, like when I was talking to a friend of mine in Ghana and he talked about like his first response to having sickness in his family was to pray. And my first response as a privileged American is to call the doctor. And I didn't even realize that was an economic choice, but it was because I have money. I can go to the doctor. His first choice is I have nothing else. I'm going to turn to Jesus. Yeah, definitely have a lot to learn from each other for sure. One of the things I loved about your husband's story, he was, I think you shared this with me, but uh, he may have shared it too. He goes overseas in um, part, different parts of East Africa, and he was talking to a group of pastors, and he basically asked for their feedback, and they he wanted to know what they needed to learn and how he could be a part of it. And I, I believe uh, the story goes that they were shocked that he went into that meeting with a learner's posture and wanted to hear from them. Whereas usually we're just like, Hey, I'm coming here and I'm teaching them all my awesome things. We're here today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we have, yeah, like you said, so, so much to learn, even in how we approach the biblical text. Some women took a Bible study I wrote in the book of Ruth over to Kenya to teach it. And they came back and said, okay, we're not just being humble when we say they taught us more than we taught them. This was, it was closer to their culture than ours. So they're explaining why you, you exchange shoes as part of a deal because you don't, paper doesn't exist in your culture. You're looking for something to exchange as part of a business deal that reminds everybody who was present what the deal was. And just so much of scripture came alive for them as they, as they, as you said, took a learner's posture and realize, you know, we have things to teach others, but they for sure have things to teach us too. So I think one of the things that complicates how we think about woman and motherhood in the American church too is because we are literate, we can read some of the church fathers. And some of the church fathers, like Augustine, who thought sex was disgusting, you know, he's great when it comes to the Trinity, but maybe we shouldn't really be listening to him on gender. He was a very sexually broken person, which which is fine, God redeems that, but it doesn't necessarily make him the best person to talk about gender. And so he didn't necessarily believe that women were made fully in the image of God. It was more like man is made in the image of God and woman is made more fully in the image of God if she's connected with a man. And and that's just that's just not accurate. I mean, Genesis makes it very clear that when God sets out to make humanity, he says, let us make humanity in our image, male and female, he made them it just clarifies that male and female image God. And even sometimes we get the idea, you know, we warn people against goddess worship, and that's appropriate, but we don't warn them against excessive male emphasis when it comes to God. It's true that God is father and God uh, came in the flesh as a man, but being father is not the same thing as being male. And, it, you know, that's a metaphor. So, you, you also have being born again, and, you know, men don't give birth. So that, that's a, a metaphor for God that, that shows that there's something about God creating and birthing us from himself and making us for himself. And 
there there's just a lot of imagery in God himself that um, that is female and I don't necessarily mean stereotypically feminine I mean that image imagery like a, a nursing mother you know the psalmist talks about I was like a weaned child against your breast Lord and we need to we need to recover some of that even in the art world when you look at the Sistine Chapel the father is drawn as a male person that's heresy and earlier iterations like this is part of the Italy trip you know if you walk into Venice's St. Mark's Cathedral it you know was founded in 1040 1064 so the father is depicted as gold mosaic all over the ceiling omnipresent or if you go into other parts of Italy pre Giotto's art you're going to see an empty throne for the father so that when you picture the father, if you're an American, you probably picture an old man with flowing hair because you got it right off the Sistine Chapel. You may not even realize where you got it from. But earlier believers did not picture the father as a male. They pictured uh, Jesus as a male and the father as a father. But it's, it's not the same. All these subtle influences and overt influences, all of them affect how we view ourselves as women and how men view women. And and even how we view manhood and sort of the alpha male ideal that is, is not anything like what John the Baptist would have been like or even Jesus would have been like. For Jesus to weep, for them to be not married in a culture where manhood equals marriage, where, you know, where they're stripped and beaten and they're not pulling out their citizenship card, uh, there's something more important to them than manhood ideals. And, and that was the gospel. Exactly. And I, I appreciate just this elevation. I think when you're thinking about this, you're elevating a view of God beyond stereotypes. And, you know, thinking about God as a mosaic of gold on a ceiling that goes on forever, I don't think that depersonalizes him. I think it makes me realize how small I am in my understanding. But I love to just think about those kinds of things of just thinking about how vast and how he is knowable, but also unknowable um, and how great he is. Preach. So you've been on this journey for a long time and I'm curious, you know, what kind of pushback you've gotten and how that's affected your story and, and also encouragement along the way. So how has this journey of kind of opening up your mind to, you know, what a woman's role can be in the world and in the church, particularly the whole wide world, not just America. You know, how has that affected you, the, the pushback and the, and the commendation? Well, I think the first fear people have is that, that I'm a feminazi, you know, that I'm a radical feminist. And, you know, I want to be quick to reassure them that's, that's exactly not what's happening. In fact, for first of all, well, on so many levels, we're following the first rabbi ever to have a female student. So if you want to call me a feminist, it's only because I'm following him. And when when her sister is saying, you're not being domestic, Jesus is the one saying, back off. She's learning theology. She's chosen what's better. Um, when you have, you know, his feet being anointed with perfume and people fussing about it. It's one of my favorite quotes of Jesus. He says, leave her alone. She's doing something beautiful for me. And so don't call that feminism. I mean, you can call that feminism if you want, but... But I think I think partly we have uh, in the church we we have excessively warned people about feminism, as I said, without warning them about the opposite, which is we have people who don't even know they're made in God's image. I had a student the first day of class in in the gender class one year, and as I was driving in, I was thinking, do I need to start so basic that I remind women they're made in the image of God? 
really, I mean, I don't want to insult their intelligence. This is seminary, uh, but I better not assume. Okay. So I get there, I open Genesis, you know, I make this statement, you know, if you are a woman, you're made in the image of God. And this woman on the front row raises her hand kind of timidly and she said, are you saying I'm already in the image of God? I said, well, I'm not saying it. This Genesis is saying it. <laughs> she kind of turned around and looked at everybody else in the group like, did you all know this? And they're like, yeah. And she, she turns back and looks at me again and she says, you mean I don't have to get married to image God? Mm. Oh, and she starts crying. Mm. I don't have to be married and have children to fully image God? No. Hallelujah. I mean, she was absolutely, utterly transformed by that truth, and she's never gotten over it. Today she is married with child, but she's still blogging about, woman, do you know who you are? You you don't, you know, and it, so it changed the course of her life. She could then be in seminary pursuing knowledge of God and training for ministry instead of constantly having one eye out for how do I complete myself as a human being by finding a man? It just, it just changed what was the focus of her life and, and it was freeing for her. So that, you know, that's the upside of it. I think the other upside of it is the recognition by a lot of men, particularly in a media arts program, uh, a recognition that I'm not just talking about stereotypes about women. I'm talking about gender stereotypes. And so often it's our alpha male pastors that are writing books on how to be macho. And, you know, they, they're extroverts, a lot of them. And, and I end up with introverted, you know, I, male students who may be the, the kid their dad is disappointed wasn't a football player, but he's a brilliant artist. He might be 5'1". He might weigh 110 pounds. And he doesn't sort of fit the stereotype of what makes someone manly. And it's freeing for them to find out that there is no body type that makes you manly, that there... If you, if God has made you with an artist's soul and, a, and an artist's uh, observation skills, then enjoy that, you know, feel his pleasure in that. And, and so it's, it's freeing for both men and women to recognize you, you don't have to be a certain way. There's another class where uh, we, we were talking about how it's only been since the Industrial Revolution that we had this division of labor where the men go off to the factory and the women stay home alone with their kids. In an agrarian society, they take turns all day. For a while, the kids might be in the orchard with dad, and then they get sent inside to help mom in the kitchen, and you know they're back and forth. And the book of Proverbs has mom and dad sort of training the kids, homeschooling as they go, if you will, because you're in a world where mom and dad are part of the kids' lives every day. And when the factories came along and men were going to the factory, we started saying it was the ideal for mom to be with the kids and dad to be earning money. But that's actually not going far enough. The ideal is for both mom and dad to be home with the kids and for both mom and dad to be using their gifts and talents to, to contribute to the economics of a household. And so I had a student where we were talking about this and he was married to a woman who was a physical therapist who adored her job. He uh, was, was rather underemployed but absolutely adored children. And it was the first time they realized he could be a work-at-home dad, and that was not a threat to his manhood. But that was actually the best use of their gifts for both of them. And uh, it's been really fun to follow their progress because um, he's a fantastic dad. In fact, he sent us some pickles that he made that were, you know, he's something he's really gotten into just mastering the domestic arts. And But he's also become more and more of a freelance writer. And I got an email from him just last month 
where he said, we have finally hit that sweet spot where my wife gets to cut back on how many hours she's doing at the hospital because I'm bringing enough, bringing enough income as a freelance writer. And I, and so we're both getting to have more time with the kids, but we're also both being able to pursue what we really love to do in terms of vocation. And he said, it's just so freeing to be able to look at our gifts and our abilities and make our decisions for what's best for our family based on that rather than based on American stereotype of who does what. I love that. And I think, you know, as we deeply study the word of God, I think it should free us more than enslave us. And, you know, the scriptures talk about the weak brother is the one with all the rules. It's the the strong brother that that is free. And so I love that you're part of kind of giving people permission to be free. How have you responded to criticism in the past of of maybe you know this pathway that you're you're walking down um, as a teacher at DTS and teaching some of these things? Well, certainly, I try to listen to their fears because sometimes what I think their fears are aren't, aren't actually what they're saying. Uh, for example, I had a student recently who really pushed back against the data that said uh, women don't earn as much as men, and and he was I I thought he was really just. Uh, sort of down on women working. And, and as I listened more, I realized, no, as an, as an economist, he didn't think, he didn't agree with the data. It's like, okay, well, there's enough disparity in women's health and in women's education internationally and in other areas that we can still agree that there is a need for, you know, doing justice when, when it comes to the more global approach to women. But so, but anyway, recognizing that it's not helpful if I'm answering a question he doesn't have or a concern that he doesn't have. Another thing is that my goal is not to push women in the pulpit. My goal is not to push women forward. It's to partner forward. So if if man and woman are made in the image of God and, and our whole missions committee at church is men, then something's lacking in the image of God on that team. It's not that I, you know, I want to come in and push women. It's that I want us to more fully image God and, and not by trying to dissect what do women bring and what do men bring. I think that is trying to delve in the mystery. There is good data that says, well, when, when the whole Bernie Madoff thing happened on Wall Street, somebody asked, would this have happened if you had all female boards running Wall Street? So somebody did some research on the ethics of boards. And as it turned out, all women boards could be just as corrupt as all male boards. But the surprising finding was that when boards were mixed men and women, they tended on average to make much more ethical decisions. So it just is so consistent with what we think about Genesis, that God made male and female to have dominion over the earth together. And so, again, instead of trying to push women forward, I am trying to help both men and women partner for the work of ministry, for the glory of God and so that doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, it might mean a woman gets to quit her job and stay home and, and that's a better use of her gifts. It just means helping people look at their gifts, trying to look beyond gender stereotypes. I am an extrovert married to an introvert. I have a hopefully some semblance of the gift of teaching and my husband's an administrator. That was not a gift package that the traditional church thought men and women in a marriage should have. And so, you know, the more I say that, the more I end up being approached by extroverted wives and introverted husbands saying both of us are feeling the pressure to be something we aren't, not just from ourselves, but from maybe our, you know, our church care group or whatever. People just don't have a robust enough view of, of what it can look like for married partners to team up and, and make decisions based on their giftedness. 
again, and I just see that as just this freeing way of looking at things. And, and as I mentioned, you know, teasing out what is an American idea of a Christian versus what is, you know, a biblical view of, of what does it mean to live in this world as image bearers of Christ? So I, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your willing willingness to just, instead of react strongly to someone that says, this is bad or whatever, you just tease it out and ask the question and try to figure out what is the actual question that they're asking. And I, I appreciate that. Part of that is because of my own journey, because I made plenty of assumptions myself that weren't right. And I've often said I should just carry chocolate around and spread it on my foot because I'm going to spend so much time with it in my mouth. It may as well taste good. (laughs) I think that women shouldn't even go to seminary, let alone teach there. So I've had to definitely through the God has been very gentle with me. And I guess that's why I try to be gentle with other people, because it's taken a long, long time for me to change my views on some of these things. Another thing I, uh, I'm i just seeing in your story is uh, a point of deep despair in battling infertility ended up helping you kind of come up with a life mission, uh, you know, walking into something new that you might not have done had you had a, a passel full of kids right away. Speak a little bit about that. I would probably not be a friend of singles because I would probably have the arrogant view that, you know, I was following God and this is what happened and you follow God, you know, it'll happen to you, which is just such a lie. (laughs) Excuse me. But also it's been a little bit of a journey of courage for me too. I really love the story about the woman with the issue of blood because Jesus didn't just heal her. He then made her come give a testimony that was deeply personal and, you know, about her menstrual cycle. How? Okay. Word. Period testimony. (laughs) Yeah, right. And so even though I had worked through many of these issues for myself, I did not want to be the poster child for women. I didn't want to be the poster child for gender. I didn't want to be that person. I already had a low opinion of that person. And so I'd say that's been the biggest change for me in the past year is just seeing that it's not just men that were made to be courageous. Women were made to be courageous. When, when Peter talks about, Sarah, you know, he talks about not being frightened by any fear. And when I look at what Esther, you know, Esther's story, she was really hiding. She was really passing, if you will. You know, she was hiding her her ethnic her ethnicity. And, you know, her cousin's like, if you don't out yourself, I'm I might out you, or God might out you. And the the text doesn't describe her as the queen until she actually decides to risk her neck. And, you know, we make it a love story and we really shouldn't because we lose the drama of how much was at stake when she walked in there. This was not a guy who was in love with her. This is not a guy who was paying attention to her. She was deciding that if I die, I die. But I'm going to do what's right. And that really, her story and the woman with the issue of blood really have inspired me that, you know, it's like God God has been nudging me. You, you can't be silent on these issues because there are people who are living in bondage. There are people who have been lied to about, by their churches or lied to by art or you know, they or they picked up messages without even realizing it that have to the box them into corners that have made their lives miserable when God made them to have so much more. And if I don't speak out, then then I am not helping to free the captives. I love that. And I know 
a lot of your writing has definitely been a part of my freedom journey as well. So I'm just so appreciative of your story. So as we finish this up, what kind of advice would you give to someone who maybe is in that place of kind of confusion about who they are in Christ, what their image bearing is? And, you know, maybe it could be a creative man or a woman who's an extrovert or, or whatever, who doesn't seem to feel like they fit within this American narrative. What kind of advice would you give? Well, certainly, you know, go back to the text and relook at I one of the one year I looked at at kindness and touch all the way through the Bible and was just so amazed at, at you know, Jesus saying, "Let these children come to me. Don't minimize the, you know, the their value to me." And so just, you know, even memorizing like leave her alone. I mean, to me that was a very encouraging transforming verse. Um, so, so be grounded in scripture, travel a little bit if you can. And if you can't try to at least get to know some people from other cultures, because that will help you see more clearly. It, it helps you see through another lens. If, if people notice that Americans are super extroverted as a people, for example, um, you know, or, or that Texans tend to like guns more than other people, you just might think the whole world thinks the way you do and, unless you get out or, or meet other people. But the other thing I would say is to look for ways to partner, look for ways to to discover other people's gifts and other people who might have been boxed in in some way, you know, whether it's the male who doesn't fit the alpha male sort of image of what it means to be, you know, a, a godly man, whether it's finding a single and asking them, do, you know, do you feel pressure from church members to find a boyfriend? You know, it, it's... Is is it more than internal pressure for you? Is it? Do you feel like we don't think you're enough? Or you know, and they might not feel that way, but just beginning to ask people how how they process and how they think and how they feel, I think, makes you realize that you're not nearly as alone. And so, in the past year, how has God given you a new story? How has He restoried you? Well, just pushing me more and more forward to have courage. You know, the last thing I wanted was to be get to be tagged as a feminist. And one of the things that I've discovered is that there are as many kinds of feminists as there are Christians. And in the same way that uh, I, I am hesitant to call myself an evangelical anymore because I have to find out how you're using that and what does that mean to you and what are your assumptions politically when I identify with that, right? And the same is true of feminists. You know, recently there was a, a big march that women all over the world participated in. And, you know, I just, I just tried to encourage my students, you don't have to have an opinion on that, of whether it's good or bad. Find somebody who marched and ask them why and listen. And so anyway, but, so that's part of, has been part of my story is just, I'm not going to worry anymore that people are going to misunderstand me because they are going to misunderstand me, but they're going to misunderstand me if I keep quiet too. So I may as well have the joy of watching other people unleashed. And I've been really amazed at how some of the doors have opened. Just one example, there was there was a man in the context of my seminary experience who I felt really needed to grow on this gender thing. I felt like he was kind of a gatekeeper and I was very frustrated with his approach. And I wasn't in a position where I could talk to him about it. I didn't have that kind of power. So I just started praying for him. Just Just started praying, praying love on him, praying that God would bring people in his life, open doors and just yesterday, he came and found me and he said, I heard you speaking on this subject. And, you know, I'm really doing a lot of thinking about it. And he thanked me. And I was just, I I didn't want to, I didn't tell him, 
dude, I've been praying for you because it would sound like, you know, I'm sticking a dog on you. But it was just such a good reminder that that the God, the Holy Spirit is alive and at work. And if, if we participate with him in his work, that he loves unleashing people from from their bondage and loves using us to do it. And and so we're not alone. And I think that's a great way to to end this particular episode is that you're not alone and you may not fit all the molds that you thought you were supposed to fit in, but there is hope and there's rescue and there's freedom. And Jesus came to set all the captives free. And it, it also says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And that's a, I think that's a good word for Sandra and for all of us that we need to endure with joy what is set before us and be brave. So Sandy, thank you so much for being brave and for sharing this just freeing message this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Love you, girl. Thanks for listening to The Restory Show. Do you mind if I pray for you? Lord, thank you that sometimes things don't work out the way we plan them or expect them to. Sometimes our expectations are dashed, but in the midst of that, you do something brand new that we never would have expected. And so for those today who are listening to this podcast who are just broken by broken expectations, I pray that you would lift our eyes above our disappointment and to look full into your face, into your eyes, to your strength, and to realize that you can make something beautiful out of the ashes of our lives. And you can make something important out of broken dreams. And you can resurrect what seems dead. And so we just continually go before your throne and ask that you would just resurrect those things that we feel like have died and have gone and and we're helpless without you. Only you are the resurrecting one. And Lord, just breathe into us a new ministry of kindness and compassion and empathy toward others. Help us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Help us to engage with people and really want to hear their stories instead of just trying to get our agenda across. Thank you, Lord, that you empathize with us, you sympathize with our weaknesses, and you're strong in our weakness. I'm so grateful for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you'd like to know more information about today's show, head on over to marydemuth.com forward slash restory 3-8. That's restory 3-8. And may you live a brand new story this week.